0: you. <music>
1: Hello, everybody, and let's lay our cards down on the table. And yes, I have discovered a new tagline for finding Hermes. I won't be using the usual Aeon Byte one, but this one came to me, and I think you'll find it's very appropriate to this age of Hermes that we live in, as I contend. And with us, it's always a pleasure to have my friend and a great mind in the esoterica, Mitch Horowitz. Mitch, how are you doing? Good, man. Great to see you. Good to be here. Oh, man. Always glad to have you on. I think this is our third or fourth time. Yes. And, um, as I mentioned, I really enjoyed uh, the Miracle Habits. Thank you. And uh, with the with the Miracle Club, I found a lot of insights uh, galore. Thank and you. some of these are like seeds. They will grow and they will flourish. In fact, I might have to bring up some of the insights from the the Miracle Club that came you know, months after I'd read your book. As I say, sometimes books choose you. You don't choose books and they have a way of uh, festering in this great complex that is our mind. But what is interesting, Mitch, is that you actually wrote it during the pandemic. I mean, right yeah. when it was hitting New York City with full intensity. How was that and how did it change the final product?
2: Well, in some respects, frankly, I think it made the final product a lot better. I was in isolation myself for over two months. I was sick with COVID in the months of March and April, and I consider myself lucky. I had a mild case, but I felt a lot of fatigue and a lot of muscular aches, and 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 I was home, in the apartment that I'm sitting in talking to you from right now, working non-stop. I would take breaks to eat and to watch World War I documentaries, which is how I depressed myself when I could no longer work. And otherwise, I was just putting the pedal to the metal. It was strange because I was aware, of course, of everything that was happening in the world. And when you're writing about workplace issues, financial issues, relationship issues, covid upended all of those and continues to and will continue to so i was trying to take all of that into account as i was writing as well
1: yeah i mean quite a process and i think uh the one takeaway i've got a few takeaways that just jumped at me and those sort of my own personal aha this is it and i hope it's whoa there i am getting excited dropping my uh my e-cigarette, my Juul, and uh, yeah, and another thing before I even get into that, you quit smoking, and I was thinking you and I have shared cigarettes before, so uh, yeah, congratulations on that one. Even though I don't care, I love to smoke, and oh, not- I love smoking. Been- uh, believe me, you know,
2: I I didn't I didn't quit. So much by, by choice as necessity. I knew it was necessary. And I'm really glad I quit before COVID struck because smoking and COVID, I can only imagine, are a poor combination. So, yeah, I've been clean since
1: December of uh, last year. Oh, wow. Well, I always thought when we were having cigarettes at uh, Rice University Houston, I was like, well, I'm a smoker and Mitch smokes. Because you would uh, come and bum some cigarettes late at night after you've had a few. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I can't swear that will never happen again.
2: But I, I, I have been clean. And uh, it's a shame. I don't know why something that tastes
1: so good is so bad for you. But so it goes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the whole point. But anyway, getting back before I drop my, my jewel. Uh, my my daughter, who's 22, calls me a hipster millennial because I guess they smoke jewels. I just smoke them because it's I'm inside the house.
2: My so. children call me much worse than that. So, no, <laughs> no, we have a very loving relationship, but you know, they will poke fun at me occasionally. Though it's amazing how you'll see that things that you're into that you think are lost on your kids suddenly just come back to you in weird ways. One of my sons was away at a wilderness camp in Utah this summer, and he sent back home drawings. And he sent drawings of trees with an eye at the center, which was the very same image that my hero Neville Goddard used on the cover of his books. And I, I never even knew he was paying attention to that. And I asked him, is this supposed to be Neville's image? And he said, yes. So I was, I was moved by that.
1: Yeah. Very cool. Interesting how these things, uh, move along. But, uh, but as I was saying, uh, there is one quote, and for the audience, I, I wrote a lot of notes because with Mitch, his books is just, uh, it's history, philosophy, mysticism, psychology, bang, bang, bang. It's, uh, he really takes you on an experience of the mind, I would say. But what jumped out of me is this quote by a Napoleon Hill. And he said that the golden rule should not just apply to our actions, but our thoughts. I was like, oh my God, aha, this is a an incredible way of navigating 2020, social media, family, you know, even yourself, even when we're hard on ourselves. So tell us more about this amazing insight.
2: Well, it, it was interesting. You know, Hill wrote a lot about the process of auto-suggestion, which is what occurs through the repeat thoughts that that run through our minds, uh, sometimes literally countless numbers of times since we were old enough to formulate conscious thoughts. And through this process of auto-suggestion, we're very deeply conditioned, influenced. We persuade ourselves of our limits, of our possibilities. And Hill made the case that what you think about other people also has an auto-suggestive function. And I, I believe that there's truth to that. Uh, I think there's a kind of symbiosis or reciprocity that runs through life. And I think that's one of the reasons why we tend to see traits in other people that we possess in ourselves. And in fact, I would even argue that we're incapable of seeing a trait in another person that, that we don't possess. Uh, That's why we don't recognize traits in other people that are not intrinsically part of us. For example, if, um, If you confront a dishonest person with honesty that that person doesn't sense that you're honest a dishonest person experiences honesty as weakness for example if you are deeply committed to an intellectual search or a spiritual search or an ethical search and you encounter somebody to whom those things are of no value they don't see that in you. I mean, they literally don't see that in you. They think you're working some con or some grift or some angle on them, or you're just being snobbish. They just simply don't understand it. So the traits that we see in other people tend to be self-traits. And when we dwell on them, when we reflect on them, there is a kind of auto-suggestion function going on. I think Uh, that was Hill's contention, where we're reinforcing these things in ourselves. So it's another reason to be very careful about gossip, slander, tale-bearing, uh, among other reasons. I think these those things are depleting and draining of our sense of nobility genuinely in, in other ways, but they also have auto-suggestive uh,
1: agencies and qualities that, 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 that condition how we think about ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was a great insight to think of others as you would think of yourself, in other words. Especially today, as you were saying uh, Social media, our shadows, our fears, everything gets projected and amplified. Yeah, yeah, uh, sure. It becomes very toxic. And I'm sure, I mean, you yourself, I think on social media, you've uh, said, even though I've never seen you write anything mean or underhanded, or even, I don't even swear on social media, Mm -hmm. you said, I'm done with politics. I was like, Yeah, I, (laughs) I made two changes on social media this
2: year. One is I stopped. Uh, tweeting about politics it's worthless i mean and it's it's actually worse than worthless at least from my perspective all it does is attract rhetorical questions sarcasm it cements other people's points of view obviously if you're in the business of politics if you're uh, a a reporter or a news commentator or if you're organizing something then references to politics are going to be necessary but for someone like me Uh, who follows politics in a more pedestrian way. It's completely unnecessary. It's certainly not necessary professionally. It's not necessarily necessary personally. I don't think it alters or changes anything ultimately. I mean, again, I'm speaking from from my own vantage point of the world. If that's your profession, there's a different rationale for it. Uh, I also left Facebook entirely. I eliminated my accounts. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. And there are common problems across all of social media, but there's something about the tech on Facebook that I found promoting of an over-familiarity, a false intimacy, a frivolity of comment. You could certainly say there's lots of frivolous comments everywhere, and that's true. But there's something about the dynamic of Facebook where if you have a a so-called friend page, you can have a maximum of 5,000 friends, in quotation marks. it, it creates a smaller, more claustrophobic world, which I think induces people towards intimacy in all the wrong ways. And I just found the quality of thought on Facebook to be so conventional and so frivolous, uh, not only in matters of politics. I would post some article that I wrote, for example, that might have taken a, a contrary point of view to something that's commonly accepted within the Western alternative spiritual culture, like it's good to be non-attached or you should strive for the ideal of non-identification or it's what's inside that counts. I don't agree with any of those things per se. And I would find that although there were a lot of good people on Facebook and I had a lot of good exchanges and relationships there, there, there was a kind of race to the bottom ultimately in a lot of the comment chains and I felt uh, like it just wasn't a place that was fertile for exploring some of the issues like the ones that we like to discuss. So I had to make some changes in social
1: media. Well, good deal. And what do you tell people? Well, by the time this interview comes out, the election is coming up. Uh, what do you tell people? Is, I mean, we've got the, the social unrest, the virus, and now yeah, we've yeah. got the election. And of course, people are like, the most important election of our lifetime, which I'm I'm like, man, I heard my parents say that with, but I mean, Reagan and Carter and, Mm -hmm. you know, later it was, it's always the most important election of our life. You can make an intellectual argument, but most are just emotional arguments. But what do you tell people about how to cope with the election and all these changes going on right now?
2: Well, obviously I have my own, political point of view. I have my own policies. I have my own wishes. We all do. Um, If I could advise anybody of anything, it would be this. Uh, Social media has rendered sarcasm into the common language of everyday life. Something sarcasm was never intended for. Sarcasm was meant to point up hypocrisies. It was meant to express humor, it was meant to be satirical, and on social media, we've created a culture, a vocabulary that's based almost exclusively in matters of politics, in sarcasm and rhetorical questions. And I find that whenever I post something that anybody finds controversial, rather than challenging me on it, they will resort to sarcasm and rhetorical questions, which are by nature uh, not only hostile, but shutting down of any possibility of exchange. And I was I was very influenced by a movie that I saw several days ago. It's part of the New York Film Festival, and it was playing at a drive-in of all places. And it was it was called um, Hopper Wells, and it was a, 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 a lo- an extended interview basically that Orson Welles conducted with the actor and director Dennis Hopper in 1970, never been seen until now. And you don't see Orson Welles on camera once. The camera is fixed on Dennis Hopper the entire time, and Orson Welles is off camera interviewing him. And it is enthralling, because what Orson does throughout the whole movie is respectfully challenge Dennis Hopper on politics, on culture, on filmmaking, without ever once... Baiting him, being sarcastic, asking a a leading or fake question, asking a rhetorical question, but just holding him to be very, very literal about what he's describing. So Dennis might be making certain political statements about the need for a revolution or something, and Orson is expressing skepticism by asking him to be very, very literal, not in a disrespectful way, but for real. And I really loved it. And I thought to myself, what are the circumstances that allow a dialogue like that to occur? Well, obviously, both people are there voluntarily. Both people respect one another. And even though Orson Welles was being very critical of Dennis Hopper, he's respecting and recognizing of Dennis Hopper as a great artist. So he's not being condescending, but he is asking Hopper to be very literal and to come to terms with what he's expressing. Without sarcasm, without hostility, and I was just overwhelmed with that. I thought that's everything that's missing in our dialogue today, and those are the kinds of exchanges that that are authentic exchanges they're so rare, there are so few of them and i I've been asking myself ever since I saw that movie, which was several nights ago, what are the ingredients that allowed that to occur that's the only insight you know i could bring to our political process obviously requires a lot of goodwill too i mean there has to be a desire to do something more than win or if you win you know to get past the the wish to just flip over the chessboard and delegitimize the process so maybe that exchange has to be exceptional maybe it's just not possible for that to be common probably that's the case but that's something i've been wrestling with
1: yeah, I would certainly agree. I think it's never the end of the world. it's always an apocalypse or revealing. And it was uh, Bishop Stephen Heller, I remember a lecture by him saying what we need what is destroying the West is not all these issues we think they are we think they are, although the important he said it's civility, lack of civility is I, I eroding. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree
2: more. And I'm glad he used the word civility. I, I, I agree with that entirely. What concerns me is that the days following my watching that movie, which was such a huge influence on me, I was asking myself, what would I ask this person? What would I ask that person? And even as I was trying to model the dialogue in my head that I would want to have, I found myself slipping into rhetorical questions, which is really just hostility, which is really just presupposing that you know the person's position is ridiculous and you're going to box them into a corner. And um, so even as a mental exercise, I wasn't doing very well at it. So Stephen is 100% correct, but I worry that there's some fissure, some brokenness in human nature that puts us at a a greater remove from civility than, than we actually realize.
1: Yeah, well, I hope I know you lead by example. I always thought uh, how you uh, comported yourself in public. I mean, you've written very fair articles on Anne Wren. You've talked mm-hmm. to about the alt-right, talked to the alt-right, and you've always yes. remained, even though your views are on the opposite, you remain civil and scholarly. So, uh, I mean, I know again you've led by example. I know it's affected me. So. I appreciate that. What was the famous saying? Like, leading by example might be the only way to lead. <laughs> yeah. I'm, as hard I'm, I'm as it is, sure. is that nobody, seems nobody hears, but yeah. Yeah.
2: And of course, you know, you have to be public about your failures too. I mean, I've, I've had, I've had, I've had, I've had, I've had my failures. Uh, I've slipped into, you know, bickering on social media and I ain't proud of it, but, but yeah. I can't, uh, I can't hide that that's been there too.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the book itself. Um, what would you consider a miracle? And I know I'm asking, but of course, I have quoted you. Uh, you say your definition of miracle is simple, a fortuitous event or circumstance that exceeds all conventional expectation. So, uh, and you further write, it's not a once in a lifetime, it can be part of your daily, weekly existence. So, a miracle is as simple as that, and your book offers miracles, or how to find our miracle. Oh, what do they say in AA? Hang on, Hang on until the miracle happens. Yeah, that's, uh, that's my contention.
2: I, I, I do believe we can, we can court the miraculous or court the extraordinary. We know we can court the tragic. We know we can court catastrophes. We do it all the time. Yeah. We see other people. It's obviously easier to see it than someone else inviting catastrophe into his or her life. And it's a fact. there's no question that we that we invite catastrophe, and by the same token it, it 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 follows that we must also be able to invite the extraordinary, invite the fortuitous in ways that go beyond any conventional expectation in ways that that go against the grain of all reasonable expectation. and I see that happen all the time. Uh, maybe all the time is putting it too colloquially, but Many, many times in my own life, in the lives of other people, it can take time, which is why one has to hang on, which is why one has to be very patient. I'm experiencing things in my life now, and I'm 54 years old, as we're speaking, that I dreamt of, I think, when I was four years old, literally. And my life went through many, many different serpentine twists and turns. And half a century later, I'm living out things that literally, literally would have been considered all but pipe dreams are impossible, say, I don't know, 20, 15 years ago. And so I do believe that we can advance in the direction of the extraordinary. It's not easy. It takes time. Uh, But as much as tragedy befalls us in this world, so does just extraordinary, unexpected good news uh, of a sort that's not always unwarranted in the same way that we can court disaster, and we do, uh, we can court the extraordinary.
1: Yeah, well said. I mean, uh, what um, now? Going into, um, I agree with you because I I believe you can turn it around at any time when you decide you're ready. Like you, it's been in my fifties that suddenly all these light bulbs have gone on, and I'm glad I have all the bad things that I did and all the good things that I did because now uh, yeah. I I I was able to sort of reflect in my middle age and see my, the holistic picture of things. Yes. Well, to go to spaces I needed to go, see my weaknesses, see my strengths. And, uh, yes, as you write at the end of your book, have faith with is just trust, trust yourself, trust your, your daemon. trust the gods and trust everything's going to go the way it's supposed to go. It's interesting. You know, I for many, many years, I've
2: practiced transcendental meditation and I fell off my practice for a long stretch for various reasons. Uh, I will go through through peaks and valleys with things and sometimes I'll, I'll distance myself from something for a while. Not necessarily a bad thing, um, but I went through a phase where I wasn't doing TM and I decided I wanted to resume it about a week ago. And I was on the phone last night with my meditation teacher and We were separated by geography, and I wanted to check my mantra with him, but one of the tenets of TM is that you're not supposed to repeat the mantra uh, over the phone or over some sort of electronic device. That's just how it's done. So I uh, I said, listen, you know, I'm having a good result with my mantra, but I'm not 100% certain that I'm I'm saying it right because it's been a while. And he said to me, you know, listen, the Maharishi, the founder of TM, said, doubt the doubt, doubt the doubt. You you have good reason to believe that you're doing it correctly. And I I liked that because the truth is I I am getting good results. And self-doubts can be as much an impulse or an addiction as anything. And I just like the expression, doubt the doubt. And I think if it weren't for some degree of self-trust, the likelihood of anything Happening to us at all, according to our designs, would be erased, would be impossible. And so belief in self, self self-trust is not some sort of foolish thing where you're strutting around like a peacock, but it's the precondition actually for any accomplishment.
1: Okay, and now I am I hope this doesn't feel like I'm throwing a lot of you, but again, there were so many insights in your book that just came. Anything. All right. <laughs> but I, I, I firmly believe that we all have, uh, I used to make fun of it, and it's funny how karma works, uh, sacred duty or sacred destiny. But now I'm like, oh, my God, he's right. The, the psyche has a mission for us, the soul, the gods. We're all somehow Arjuna and that myth just keeps yeah. coming back at me uh very much at the same time your book really talks about to reach that you have to have this incredible focus this mm-hmm. tunnel vision yeah and it will happen but at the same time how do you know it's the mission is from your soul and not your ego for example the movie the secret i used to make fun of and i mm-hmm. still do because i do think like you we can reality with our thoughts. Yeah. But the question is, is it the reality my ego wants or the reality my higher self wants? And again, people call you, they name you Walter White because you're very driven. But we all know that Walter White's life was way too driven. And as you would point out, it wasn't that he wanted uh, to be a drug dealer is that he wanted to feel alive. He missed it. You know, he, he could have gone to the real source of what was his mission or what wanted to feel alive, to have a thrill. And, but he kind of followed the ego and the money and went into become a drug dealer. But how do you know, which is the right, again, which is your ego? Are we listening to Krishna? Or are we listening to Arjuna? Okay. well, I apologize if I threw too much, but no, no, not at all. I mean, I was going to throw in Oedipus who you talk about, but I'll leave. (laughs) We'll deal with that next.
2: No, I, I, that's a very heavy question and I'm going to give you a very, very heavy blunt response. And I'm, what I'm going to say is going to sound like I'm trying to be, you know, provocative or I'm speaking, you know, with my chin too far extended. I'm not trying to be provocative because I've wrestled with that myself and this is as a seeker and I can only speak seeker to seeker to you, to your listeners. This is where I've come down. I think that this divide between ego and soul or ego and essence has been a misdirected description framework of the human situation. I think that's a mistaken notion of human nature that has served to perpetuate feelings in the individual uh, for many generations, if not centuries, of terrible, terrible internal division. I think it's a false division that many of our religious traditions adopt, reprocess, translate into different terms, language, concepts, to the point where it's considered to be. Uh, an unquestioned basic reference point in truth. I think that's a mistake. I believe that the essential task of the individual is to create, to be generative, to attain, to aspire, to create within our own sphere that which exists uh, and, and, and from which we uh, emerge as above, so below, as the great hermetic dictum goes. And I think that it's all one thing. I don't believe in ego in essence. I don't believe in uh, soul and ego. I don't believe that there are higher and lower iterations to our striving so much as I believe in reciprocity. I believe that as long as I am doing nothing to disrupt another individual's, to knowingly, intentionally disrupt another individual's uh, search for self-potential, I am absolved of my obligations to another. I am not doing something to another that I wouldn't want done to me, And since I do believe that there is a, a oneness or a cosmic reciprocity, or call it whatever you will, Ultimately, all acts are universal. And if I'm not demeaning, denigrating, or in some way um, erecting a barrier for another individual or community or group, I'm absolved of ethical obligation. I'm not doing violence to another person. And my experiments become my own. And I think whatever's fulfilling to the individual is the response, an adequate response, a necessary response to whatever he or she is, is drawn to do. It's it's hard for me to speak in terms of a soul, I, I think more in terms of a psyche, which I think of as a kind of unified sense of self, physical, extra-physical, emotional, intellectual, and that psyche has within it a calling, a song, a wish, and I think we get blocked from adhering to that, understanding it, or even knowing what it is, by notions that I think ancient traditions that were shaped in vastly different cultural times, places, circumstances where people were cemented into roles that they were going to remain in for the rest of their lives, almost no matter what. And I don't know that for all the beauty found in the traditions of the world, that concept of, of, of man's dual nature, we'll call it, uh, is serviceable to us here and now. Every religion is the work of human hands. Every religion, for whatever its universality, is responding to the needs of individuals from a particular time, place, culture. And I think the translations of translations of translations of religious thought, Eastern, Western, that have reached us today that posit this division a higher and a lower, say in human nature, an ego and an essence, whatever term one wants to use. I don't think those are constructive summations of human nature. I think we're one, I think we're one. I think that the imperative to not do violence to another is 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 the primary ethical mission of the human being because there is a a sameness of the kind I've just been describing. But I think that we can't hear the song of self if we're convinced that there's a division and we're set to worrying that I'm moving down a wrong road because I don't know if it's ego or essence. I, I don't think that's there. And I know that's breaking with a lot of tradition. And I don't do that because I like to break things. But that's been my response to that conundrum over the past several years. And it has helped me personally, to be much more relaxed, much more focused, and much more at home in my life.
1: So when people want to know, well, Mitch, what should my path, I mean, you talk about the the miracle habits, you detail them, what advice do you give them beyond following the habits or reading the book? Mm -hmm. I I would say, these days, I just tell people, know thyself. I I can't think of, uh, Mm -hmm. you'll find God, you will find God. I,
2: I, I think you'll. You, I think there's a song of the self that every individual feels—a desire, a pull, a passion that may not necessarily seem achievable or realistic or available at a given moment, time, place in your life. But at least know what it is. You know, know what it is. I mean, know what it is that you wish for. There may be all kinds of logistical, situational, financial questions that are heavy and those are real, and I am there with you in the trenches for those. But uh, as a baseline starting point, know in the innards of your own psyche what you want, and don't let that be taken from you by someone else's decision or some repeated notions that have been handed down over so many different generations. We feel that they are as solid and unconscionable questionable as the floorboards beneath our feet. I don't agree with, with that approach to the search uh, and I believe that knowing what you wish for, leaving aside pragmatics for the moment, but knowing in the innards of your guts what you wish for, being unembarrassed about that, feeling no compulsion to seek another person's approbation or another person's decision about that, I think could be just extremely valuable to the individual.
1: Yeah, well said. And at the same time, another insight I got from your book, and this is something I tell people, but you're talking about depression, something mm-hmm. you and I, have, of course, struggled for most of our lives. And in 2020, it's becoming more of the norm than the exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, the psych yeah. collective and individuals under a lot of stress. And yeah, you say, there is not one silver bullet for depression. You have right. to go on a multi prong approach and there's no wrong answer. I mean, but make it a multi prong approach, whether you're gonna do meds, meditation, spirituality. And I think Mitch, it's it goes even to any sort of spiritual pursuit or because I feel in a way new age works today because it's syncretic and to deal with depression, to deal with any other issues. Drug addiction—you have to be syncretic because our minds are so fragmented today. We wear so many personas in our daily lives that we do need uh, a full recipe to for anything. Is the days of simple? Well, if I go to church on Sundays, I'll be okay. If I go to an AA meeting Friday nights, if I do yoga just on Wednesday nights. So, you would agree that times have changed, and we have to have this new age uh, attitude, if you would.
2: I I agree with that entirely. I agree with that entirely. You know, the, the first of all, you know, as you were alluding, the typical rap on new age is that it's cafeteria religion, it's cherry picking. And my response to that is so what, so what, you know, all religions have been syncretic. I mean, my God, in the Mediterranean basin, everybody was borrowing from everybody else, you know, no sooner would, you know, one of the Caesars conquer some other nation that, you know, he would be incorporating, you know, some of its views into into his religious beliefs, you know, and, and and people would embrace the religious beliefs of whomever they were under the domination of. And what were those guys doing over the next hill? You know, we'll embrace those, you know. I mean, the Mediterranean Basin was such an unbelievable syncretic experience experience of belief. We've been doing this for a long time, but regardless, the vintage of something is not really what matters. What matters is, does it work in the life of the individual? And I believe very seriously in what you were saying, you know, people, this notion that cafeteria religion is something that needs fixing, you know, is something I completely reject. I mean, all religions seem to start this idea that, you know, something needs fixing and by God, we're going to fix it. And, you know, it doesn't matter how many skulls get cracked, you know? And I mean, my feeling is uh, what matters is conduct. What matters is conduct. You know, it's, it's hilarious to me when I hear people speak of like, you know, a a certain belief as being a delusion, you know, for example, how would you measure a delusion in terms of an ethical or spiritual philosophy other than conduct? Does it lead me or somebody else to some ruinous you know, behavior, if it does, well, let's talk about that. That's clearly could be a problem. But if I practice transcendental meditation and I take an SSRI and I'm interested in, you know, philosophies X, Y, and Z, and I'm interested in hermeticism and I'm interested in Gnosticism. And well, you know, I would say, uh, call it whatever you will. Accuse me of cafeteria religion, accuse me of cherry picking. It doesn't matter. I would say, let's, consider the question of my my conduct, my functioning, my relationships, and if that approach is effective for me, then we're just debating questions of taste, you know, at that point. And I do believe that a New Age approach has, has proven effective in the lives of many, many Contemporary seekers, many 20th and 21st century people around the world. It's not going to go away. Um, And the question of dealing with depression, anxiety, I I do believe these things really require uh, many different channels of of treatment. And I don't want anybody to feel any hang-up about combining meds, for example, with spiritual practice. I try to be very public about the fact that um, I take an SSRI, because I, I want to be upfront that my search has a spiritual component, an ethical component, a pharmaceutical component. I'm interested in mainstream medicine. I'm interested in complementary or alternative or holistic medicine. I'm interested in things that are effective, demonstrably effective in the life of the individual, and I don't want anybody to feel bound by any convention or somebody else's decision.
1: Yeah, well said and uh I think uh I don't call it cafeteria. I think I subscribe to April Deconic and their book The Gnostic New Age uh everything in the kitchen sink. I mean, the gnostics yes. and the hermetics were dealing with the rise of Christianity, the brutality of the Roman Empire, the failure right. of the third, of the second temple. Yes, he said, fuck it. We're going to throw everything. We don't care what it is. Sex magic and theogens, uh sacramentals and we're going to we're going to stay sane and spiritual so I think that's a good advice today because these times I know people always say well we have parallels to the Roman times and I'm like no we really do have parallels to the roman stuff right right now now we do
2: yeah this is i can make a good argument finally in western civilization we can say that you know it's like well at least we can all agree on that you know so yeah no it's it's um i i i'll stick with what you're saying you know i mean syncretism uh, combinative approaches They're part of the story of religion. You know, we've all built on one another. It's
1: part of the story of how human beings search. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. And um, what about the idea of habits? That's another thing that jumped out at me because I'm reading your book and there's all this good stuff you've got. Even before you get into the, the miracle habits, you're giving all this advice. But you also talk about there's a quote by Emerson, and he said, imitation is suicide and I went like <laughs> what does Mitch want me to throw this book out now is this like, <laughs> I can't be I can't be original but so what do you mean by that and how would you explain what are some habits I think I think it was uh Alexander Pope about cosmic habit force but anyway tell us about that well
2: I, I mean of course uh, uh, habits can be must be highly individualized. I want everything the individual does to speak to his or her own needs. I use the term habit because I want us to think in terms of repeat actions that are always there, that are always with us. You know, a, a coach made the point to one of my kids recently that discipline is more important than inspiration because although inspiration is a driving force, it, it, what comes from discipline will always be present, inspiration by its very nature is is intermittent and I started to think in terms of the cumulative effects of daily actions that we take. Of course, we think of a habit as something negative, but it, it's it's any repeat action that is performed almost in the state of osmosis and I think we can get there with things that are quite effective, for example, uh, acting with with rapidity in our responses responding to people quickly not rashly not in some foolish knee jerk way but not not dithering time dissipates whatever energy is present around a project and if we trifle with time we're going to lose opportunities so i'm very interested for example in people getting into the habit of responding quickly to opportunities when they arise there are many 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 things that will benefit you in that respect it doesn't mean behaving rashly but it does mean that if you've gathered enough information if you have read broadly enough kept up with whatever your field is and so on you have the appropriate tools that you can move with great rapidity so that's obviously something that has to be catered to every individual's life but that's that's one idea that's small in its own way but that can be very great in a cumulative way
1: no makes perfect sense and uh, the other thing that jumped out to me, and this is something that um, was both, I think you talk about this, you've talked about this before, I don't know if you've talked about it, you've written about, but speaking of the power of the mind, and sometimes the importance of sort of suspending your disbelief or getting yourself in a story, how important it is to get in a story without going too deep, but you talk about the study Uh, Harvard psychologist. Oh yeah, yeah. Ellen, it's remarkable. Do you want to talk about it, or do you want me to read? I have it right here, but it's one of the most remarkable. It's and it has so many angles and lessons to it. But go ahead. Unbelievable. Yeah, Uh, a Harvard psychologist named Ellen Langer, who's still living and still working,
2: uh, who's done some really just extraordinary work uh, on 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 surroundings and and age, or surroundings and physical fitness and. Uh, Langer found in one study, which is is very controversial, but the truth is damn near every social science study is controversial. (laughs) About 20 years after every social science study, somebody comes and overturns its methodology. (laughs) So to say a social science study is controversial is to say it actually is. And Langer did a study where she took uh, uh, elderly folk, placed them, in essence, in settings of nostalgia, living situations, where they're surrounded by all kinds of media, music, reference points, furniture, so on and so forth, that evoke their youth. And over a period of time, these people begin to show traits that are uh, more associated with uh, youth, a greater uh, muscle mass, uh, lowered uh, hypertension or blood pressure, uh, lowered rates of depression and anxiety, um, even improved eyesight. And uh, she, she felt that... If you're placed into situations that evoke youth, the body seems to respond in some corresponding way. Now, one of the questions I have about that study is, is it measuring youth? Uh, is it measuring nostalgia or, or, or is it measuring novelty? You know, it, it, it may very well be that after a while, if you put people into that situation, and it was long term. It's possible that what they were responding to was, was the novelty of the new you know, rather than than the nostalgia. But in any case, it showed impact where there should have been none. It was absolutely extraordinary. I and mean, these people had physically measurable benefits, as did a group of hotel maids that Langer studied much more recently. She took a group of hotel maids, divided them into two groups. One was a control group with whom they did nothing. The other group of hotel maids was given accurate information that the jobs that they were doing Uh, had aerobic and anaerobic benefits these women were they're on their feet all day They're, they're they're cleaning they're changing linen they're vacuuming it's a tough job but it's a physically active job it should carry with it these um anaerobic and aerobic benefits as soon as the women were given this accurate information without any other changes to their lifestyle including changes in diet or exercise they began to evince dramatic physical improvements, loss of weight, improved um, muscle mass uh, ratio, lowered blood pressure, better mood, greater rates of energy, better sleep. Mm -hmm. And it was remarkable. And they weren't being manipulated. They were given accurate information about their jobs. So Langer was able to demonstrate that what we think about our surroundings and what we experience within our surroundings has measurable empirical impacts on our lives. And it ought to give people a lot of pause, a lot of pause about what they're surrounding themselves with in terms, not only of individuals, but decor, music, media, what their surroundings are. And, and I think their style of dress, the environment that they create for themselves. Um, These things I believe are Impactful in ways that go beyond uh, the ordinary, that goes beyond what we suspect.
1: No, I would agree. Like uh, I'm quoting Doctor Who, but he says our souls are not made of atoms; they're made of stories. I think we're always supposed yes. to be in a story. Like I said, suspend your disbelief, cosplay. Just uh,
2: yes, absolutely. Pretty, I-, I couldn't uh, agree more.
1: Neil Gaiman said, "Don't pretend you're wise. Pretend you're someone who is wise. Don't go, yes. go for the ideal. Go for." This other person that's yes. probably inside your head,
2: <laughs> and I've been doing that ever since I was a kid. I mean, literally, I realized at a certain point that I mentioned age four earlier. I've been doing this since I've been age four, and um, I think it's 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 come back to me and reshaped my lives in ways that I never could have fathomed.
1: No, oh, yeah, definitely. And now I wanted to bring up this part from the Miracle Club. And this Mm -hmm. has been a huge help in my life. Again, I think when you read Mitch's work, you will find something that you can apply to your life to improve it. Um, And that is uh, the show, and people are going to be a little bit surprised, but the young Pope, I love the young Pope. (laughs) Somehow it made me really appreciate the Catholic Church again. As strange as I would say the young Pope is kind of a Gnostic hero because he's He's cast by his parents into a world and he's trying to redeem with this tegumolam, Olam, this world. But you write in uh, the Miracle Club how it's true. When he wanted a miracle, yes, he didn't just, he was not humble. He didn't, he didn't have a small ego. He went and he demanded God for that miracle. He would say they're hours outside. I mean, he was not going to stop talking to God until he had that power from God to these wonderful miracles that helped others, or he would go into a pool and pray for minutes, almost drowning. So yes, to me, that was a lesson because I I am no longer like meek about praying. I will go out with my dogs into the woods and I will sit there and go, God, you know, and I will go into a trance for it, but great insight and tell us how you do it or how it's worked out for you.
2: Sure, sure. Um, I believe very, very deeply in prayer, Uh, although one of my philosophical heroes is Neville Goddard, who I have tattooed here on my left arm. Um, And Neville taught that everything is within, the creative energies are all within you. I feel that living with paradox is an absolute necessity on the inner path. If you think you're going to match up everything, um, you're going to create a great deal of frustration for yourself. And if you insist on matching up everything, you're going to, you're going to restrict yourself and and lose some opportunities. I believe very strongly in forming relationships with uh, petitionary relationships with deific energies, whether it's some conception of the Judeo-Christian God, whether it's another being from the pantheon of gods. I think that our ancient ancestors had a profoundly deep understanding of nature and of the individual's relations to the surrounding reality, the world, the cosmos, and they would personify energies, call it whatever you will, set, Minerva, Jupiter, Aphrodite, God, whatever. Whatever energies you feel that you can identify and form a petitionary relationship with is a framework for prayer and i don't think any uh restrictions apply uh, to prayer this notion that we can only pray one way to me is again uh something that that kind of gets uh fostered by repetition verify that can we pray just one way a new thought a tradition that's important to me we're often told that you have to pray as if Uh, with the feeling that you've received and so you shall receive now of course there's precedent for that in the gospels i I understand that but there's precedent for a lot of kinds of prayer in scripture if you want to draw upon scripture you know cain argues with god after he slays his brother abel and says you know the punishment you've given me is too great if you make me a wanderer across the earth i'm going to be killed by whomever happens to come upon me and god says okay i'll revise the punishment i'll put the so-called mark of cain on you, and it'll let everybody know that if you kill this man, uh, you'll suffer multiple injuries yourself in return. There are many, many, many examples in Scripture, if that's what you want to draw upon, of the individual cajoling, begging, demanding. And one of the things I loved in in the Young Pope, and it's interesting—you you, you'll find greater theological truths sometimes in a movie, a story, a television show where there's supposed to be no theology uh, than you will in works that are dedicated to the subject. You know, Ira Levin, a professed atheist, uh, created a, a better, more convincing uh, portrait of practical Satanism in Rosemary's Baby than, you know, have most other books that have been written, although I have a great love for for Anton LaVey and Michael Aquino. Um, but I've found that The Devil's Advocate provides a better theology of Satanism than does anything that's been written mostly in the last, you know, 25, 30 years. So movies can creep up on you my friend Michael Muhammad Knight began his conversion to Islam after watching Spike Lee's uh, Malcolm X, you know, and Mike wondered, can a movie be sacred scripture? And I think we all know the answer to that question. Of course it can. Of course it can. Moments of extraordinary truth appear in movies and other works of art that supposedly have no intention of informing us of theology or spiritual practice or anything else. So I was very moved by what you were alluding to in the young Pope where this young conservative catholic intellectual you know audaciously wants to be named pope well, what does he do he prays so hard that you know he, he, he he's almost shattered by it physically and he gets what he wants he gets what he wants and i thought to myself there's lots of precedent for that prayer uh, that kind of prayer if you want to look in scripture you'll find it there if you want to look in your own life you may find it there too and i was very touched by it and it 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 just shattered my sense that prayer had to be approached according to any uh, script. And, And I love the audacity of it. Pray audaciously. See what happens. See what happens. I think you have to be all in and you have to want something with such an intensity and such an unembarrassed fervor, such an unembarrassed fervor that there's no internal contradiction whatsoever and things may happen.
1: Yeah, and it'll clean your psyche, and you'll find your voice. I mean, he, the young Pope is like, I don't want to be nice to my neighbor. I don't want to do the commandments. I want to be Pope, but I I realize I want to be Pope to serve you, and he had to. He made his choices, but he really went into this altered state of mind. This, like you said, this fierceness, and it uh, informed him and brought him peace throughout his uh, trials. So, yes, and he yeah, got God to destroy corruption and give some lady, make some lady fertile. I mean, he really served others. He was never in it for himself. So.
2: Yes. And it's interesting. You know, I, I see people will critique the secret or new thought or whatever and say, you know, there's no talk of giving back. And immediately my alarm buzzers go off when I hear that it's like, save us from the people who want to give back. I mean, you know, who's, I don't know who's done greater harm in this world than those who are sure they're going to save the rest the of us. The to people. hell. All right. I don't know, you know, whether the engineers who program these devices that we're talking on ever made the decision that they want to help other people or it ever even crossed their minds. But obviously, they've helped us to connect from across the country. We're connecting right now with your listeners. I'm glad that we're doing that. You know, I, I think we have to scrutinize these concepts about giving back and, you know, figure out what we're really after.
1: Yeah, if you find your mission, your mission will be beneficial to the rest of the tribe or the pack. I mean, uh, but also the show is called Finding Hermes because, again, as I've said, he's the god of the mind, but he's also the trickster god. So he's the perfect god for addiction, mental issues, uh, and so forth. But I was I thought it was a great thing that you yourself for a while was... Uh, Mercury was your God for a while when uh, the statue in New York that you'd see every day Yes. About yes.. That, so. Yeah. I, and it, it ties into the your idea of an anarchic magic too, which is an important yes. issue, I think.
2: Yes. I, I came upon a building uh, one day in New York city, um, which was close just on the outskirts of Chinatown. It must've been a turn of the century building. And there was a modern base relief of Mercury out front And I decided as a personal experiment and devotion, dedication, that uh, every day, every morning for a period of weeks, I was going to pray to Mercury in front of this building. And I I took the subway to an out-of-the-way stop, which was a little far from my office. And um, there was this wonderful, very indulgent Latin American woman who sat in front of the building who was selling newspapers off of a milk crate. And... uh, uh, you know she thought I was just you know some perfectly nice lunatic. I would buy a newspaper from her, and i would I would stand there and I would pray to uh, Mercury. And uh, it was a very meaningful exercise for me because i I wanted to first of all, there were certain things that i that I wanted, and uh, there were certain things that were important to me in my career as a writer, as a publisher, as a speaker, all things that are under the domain of Mercury. And I found this object of beauty. Uh, on a building put there by some people who were around a hundred years before me. And uh, that object of beauty simply served as an ignition or an instigation for me to explore a relationship to Mercury. And I'm very glad I did. And so it can be that simple. It can be that simple. I mean, my wish is that the individual should know something or should want to know something about the back pages, the tradition of what he or she is attempting, but but look, you know, I think it's it's that simple. You know, I remember one night I was uh, sitting in some uh, macrobiotic restaurant somewhere and I overheard these guys at an adjoining table who were from a local yoga studio, say that on Thursday nights at their studio, they had some sort of a uh, devotional service to uh, the, the god Ganesha, the, the elephant-headed god. And uh, at the time, this was many years ago, I thought to myself, huh, you know, bunch of new agers you know what are they talking about Ganesha you know they're 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 not real Hindus blah blah blah. and then I caught myself and I thought well wait a minute wait a minute you know how do I know what they'll find you know maybe this will be a very meaningful experience for those guys and I'll have something to come back and tell people or maybe it'll be a terrible experience or whatever it is you know why would I want to uh why would I want to uh, eliminate the possibility for another person by writing it off as being invalid or unserious or, you know, who these new agers think they are. Religious ideas travel all over the world in myriad and diffuse ways. And let's see what these guys come up with. And let, maybe it'll provide some footsteps. Maybe it'll be a corrective. Who knows? But I'm very sympathetic to these, these experiments. They're going to, they're going to go on. And I think that, um, you know, creating an atmosphere of hostility towards them doesn't do anybody any good.
1: Indeed. And as we get towards the end of the interview, maybe you would you want to break down or give a summary of your book. What can the reader expect? What are the habits or the road you take them through? Or what was the intention of your book? Sure. I, I start off the book by talking about something that, that you and I covered a little bit earlier,
2: which is my very serious question uh, about um, what we might call non-attachment, non-identification, this division between a, an ego and a higher self, this idea that, 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 you know, somehow we have to listen for, you know, what dog whistle within us is summoning us to something higher versus lower. I have, uh, personally speaking, as a seeker, you know, I have a deep difference with that, that, that framework that gets visited upon us. And so I, I argue that point, And then I suggest uh, that the 13 habits I explore in the book can help a person. Uh, discover what I think is an authentic sense of self-expression that I hope will leave you happier, more relaxed, more effective. And we've covered some of the steps. One of the steps in the book that I want to call attention to is um, getting away from cruel people, escaping cruelty. I think we have been brainwashed to think that we have to somehow stay in proximity to cruel people because we're related to them, for example. And, um, We do not have to. The consequences might be so great that we choose not to separate ourselves, but I want people as a baseline to realize that there is no convention that means that you have to stay in proximity to a cruel person. And let me tell you, I would never say this lightly. I really believe that uh, that chapter and what you find within it, if you take it seriously, uh, it could just be so transforming and so helpful to you as an individual, because I realize in my own life and the lives of other people, we, we are, 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 are sort of just held in thrall to this idea that there were certain relationships we can't get rid of. That's not true. There may be consequences, and those consequences may be serious. But if you have a relationship that's draining, depleting, debilitating, it's taking so much from your life. It's not right, it's not natural, it's not normal. And there's nothing like that that you should put up with. I don't care
1: who the person is
2: literally who the person is. And I want people to get in touch with that side of themselves.
1: Well said. Oh, and for the audience, when I mentioned Walter White, I'm talking about breaking bad for those who might've not seen the show, but, uh, Uh, Yeah, an excellent show with a lot of lessons but uh, well awesome Mitch well we are at the end Uh, as always it's great to talk to you it's great to have you on the new podcast Finding Keys and uh, good luck with your book and audience I know you're going to find a lot of insights in the Miracle Habits as well as the Miracle Club thank you man pleasure to be here as always as always thank you
3: Forgive me, Lord, for I have been unforgivable. It's not true that I illumine myself, you illumine me. It's not true that I feel omnipotent. You are the Lord omnipotent. It's not true that I don't care about anything. The only thing I care about is you, you alone. And if I have forgotten to thank you, I thank you now. And if I have sinned by presumption, I ask your forgiveness now. And if I have tricked poor Don Tommaso, I ask your forgiveness now. And if I have frightened people, I ask your forgiveness now. And if I have wished Spencer and Dusselier harm, I ask you send harm my way as well. And if I have abused my power, I ask you to take it from me now. Forgive me, Lord. Illumine me. Give me the words to say to the Cardinals. My address regards you. My words are your words. I keep praying for you to make something happen. So why this awful, crawling feeling that nothing ever does? I know. Dictate to me, Lord. Yes, dictate to me. I've I've always been good at taking notes. You know that. You know that.
1: And there you have it. Episode three of Finding Hermes. So glad to have my favorite Marxist, my favorite Satanist, and my favorite KISS fan, Mitch Horowitz. Well, he's actually also a bright soul, a good guy, and a fellow Gen X outcast. And yes, we didn't get into Oedipus. Even if Oedipus does appear a few times in The Miracle Habits... And Mitch himself says it's a conundrum still. It's an issue he's not been able to solve. So we might have to wait for the next time. I, uh, oddly enough, Oedipus has been around in a sort of sink for me. And maybe it's because this year it seems that fate is just happening and we're all sort of in the back seat. And what a dark fate. But yes, uh, beyond our conversation and Mitch's book, Uh, The recent interview with Dylan Burns on fate, free will, and divine providence also discussed, well, not just fate, but also Oedipus. And his book, Did God Care?, certainly talks about Oedipus. So what's up with Oedipus getting all Seinfeld-like? Well, um, with any ancient myth or story or a domain close to the imaginal or the archetypal world, we know there's going to be a multiplicity of meanings, and one of these meanings could make a difference or stir something in your own soul. So I'd like to look at some of the differences with old Oedipus himself. I would say one way to look at it, and Mitch would disagree is he's gone all non-dual, And there's no separation of the ego and the higher self and so forth, which is fine. But from my perspective, you could say that Oedipus is, well, he didn't listen. Well, he didn't listen to the gods. He followed only his ego. He went all for Oedipus. He was ambitious. He wanted material rewards. And he could have taken another path, a spiritual path, perhaps. Perhaps he could have just joined some temple and worshipped Asclepius for all of his existence and not followed the vagaries of fate or what was set before him. Maybe not. The other way to look at Oedipus is, well, if it was fated, did he really have to be Oedipus? He could have been somebody else. I mean, instead of being fate's fool, he could have fooled fate. Uh, As I mentioned before, this uh, relates to how the shamans would dress as women to fool the spirits out there in the astral plane. Or how Jesus came down to these domains in the shape of a man to fool the archons. Or how uh, Athena and Prometheus conspired to sneak into Olympus and steal the fire from Zeus. So, this is a great lesson that perhaps you can fool fate. But, you gotta play the trickster. Yes, you gotta get all Hermes and Mercury-like. Prometheus-like. Um, also, we can look at it uh, in the... From the angle that the universe does require a sacrifice, a sacrificial lamb, a uh, yeah, a scapegoat. Maybe that's just the way the universe is. I mean, if you can recall, Thebes was in a very bad place. It was held hostage by the Sphinx, and the population was starving. Oedipus saved the population by uh, solving the riddle of the, the Sphinx, and, well... He saved the city. He was a savior, so maybe he had to just play his part, as they say. And in the end, when he lost his eyes, well, as the story goes, his third eye opened. He was able to see things as they were and see inside of himself and see all the mistakes he made. Uh, very much like Neo in the Matrix, he he knew it was fated that he make certain choices. He just needed to find out why he made those choices so those are different ways to look at Oedipus and fate and again maybe we can fool fate maybe we are uh fate's fool in the end I would go with the former but then again uh I'm thinking of uh Mickey Rourke and Angel Heart he couldn't trick fate well he certainly couldn't he certainly couldn't trick the devil So, but that's another speculation. And yes, you certainly need to adopt some miracle habits, some new habits, some uh, transcendental habits. Uh, These are good to program the brain, to fool the archons, to uh, even fool your ego if it's uh, distorted or warped. Think about that and think about the interview. One habit that I suggest and has worked out for me in my life is that of service work. I mean, in AA, what do they say? I can't think myself into right action, so I have to act myself into right thinking. And service work is very much uh, in the essence of St. Francis of Assisi and his idea of self-forgetting. The more we give, the, the less there is of us, and the more the divine can come into our lives. Obviously, the danger is codependence. Giving too much, you might give up the energies of your soul and lose your identity that you need for this life's mission. Another way to look at the idea of service work, um, well, I'm going to tell you a story about my mother. My mother, in the mid-80s, acquired HIV. She got it. And keep in mind, this is the mid-80s she thought her life was over. She thought she was going to die soon. She thought she would be ostracized from the church, from her social circles, perhaps even her family. She didn't want to tell anybody. Uh, It was really, well, she thought about ending it all. Uh, In those days, it seemed uh, HIV or AIDS was a death sentence. So what did she do? Well, she decided to go to the route of self-forgetting. She decided to uh, be of service, even if uh, it was her last days. So she, um, she started volunteering at a hospice where men would go to, well, uh, spend their last days, who, men who had AIDS. It was called the Omega House. And uh, she would come and tell me what she did, and it was very hard on her, I mean. She was there to take care of these poor men that had been abandoned by their families, abandoned by their neighborhoods, uh, society. I mean, my mom was the last person they saw and she took care of them in their last days before they departed. And what struck me kind of recently is that my mom was playing Hermes. She was... Well Hermes is a psychopomp. He is the he is the one who in the tales carries the living into the land of the dead and vice versa. He is the mediator between the darkness and the light, between all the realms. So my mom in a way was leading these men who were dying to a doorway to the next life, to their next existence, to their next to their next incarnation. My mom was playing Hermes. She became Hermes. She found Hermes, and it's well, it, the whole experience, as hard as it was, really helped her. She found meaning in life. She found freedom. She found happiness again by working at the Omega House, volunteering at the Omega House. And I feel it's uh, not just the self-forgetting, but she became Hermes, that uh, being that can travel the different worlds and help others go through doorways. So if you take on service work like I have, if that's one of your habits, think of being a Hermes. You're the one who is helping others through doorways. It can be something small. It can be something uh, seemingly banal, but... If you can help others go through doorways, well, you will make the universe a lot more open and your life a lot more richer. What's the saying? When God closes a door, he opens a new one. Well, that's great, Jehovah. But do you ever help anybody go through it? No, that's Hermes. Hermes is the one that gets you through the door. He's the God of doorways. The door hinge belongs to Hermes. So I would say find your Hermes and become a Hermes to others to lead people through doorways they might be too afraid to go through or they're just not, uh, they just need help getting through it. And soon you'll be able to go through some new doorways yourself or others will help you go through doorways. We all need help. So that's another miracle habit I would suggest. And certainly get Mitch's book, The Miracle Habits. So I hope you've enjoyed it. And again, uh, if you get a chance, please join the Finding Hermes program. Uh, We are meeting at the Real Virtual Alexandria. We've already had two meetings. One was the Gnostic Roundup and Q&A meeting, which was a lot of fun. And we discussed, uh, well, we uncovered and shared a lot of very cool Gnostic insights, the latest in Gnostic scholarships and uh, what is going on in, Gnos- in culture from a Gnostic perspective. The second meeting was our Praxis, Praxis Ritual and Therapeutic Healing meeting. Well, I did a presentation where I shared Gnostic vowels and chants. Very authentic to ancient times. I uh, gave the participants some exclusive videos and exercises. And again, these are loyal to the Gnostics 2,000 years ago. uh, I recreated what a Gnostic ritual would have looked like back then with everything. the, The liturgy, the exercises... Uh, even the music and so forth, and I'm very grateful for scholars and, um, well, scholars and their students who are doing such hard work to bring this out, because, uh, again, this... Knowledge seems to have been lost and now we are finding it. So please join if you can. Love to see you there. If not, worry. Don't, well, if not, don't worry because uh, we've got more Finding Hermes coming out. I hope it's in October, might be in November, but more content coming out, including Aeon Byte and some other, well, heretical content. And if you can, if you're watching this on the CIA tube, please subscribe. Please hit alerts. Let me know how I'm doing, what topics you might want to cover, or guests you might want to have. I'm always here to talk to you. In the meantime, please keep putting your cards on the table. I shall too. Keep going through those doors and keep finding your Hermes. (music) Thank <music> you.